welcome to Prime Time. This week, Henry Pelham, or an episode for exploring the Honourable Henry Pelham, Walpole's protege, and for connected purposes. Hello, and welcome to Prime Time. We're rating all of the British Prime Ministers from Robert Walpole to the modern day. I'm John. I'm Rob. And I'm Cass. And today we are looking at our third Prime Minister, Henry Pelham. Is he more interesting than the last one? I think it would be hard to be less interesting than the last one. (laughs) True. The Second Son. Henry Pelham was born sometime between 1694 and 1696. And much like Lord Wilmington, he was a younger son. I think he was born on my birthday. So I think the window is sometime towards the end of 1694 and towards the beginning of 1696. Then I think he was born on John's birthday. Well, but we don't really know. He is a second son. What does that mean? He doesn't get the title and he doesn't get the money. Ah. So he has to get a job. Something like that. Although this is a rather different relationship than than Wilmington with his brother. So his parents, or their parents, were Thomas Pelham, First Baron Pelham, and Lady Grace Hollis. Thomas Pelham was someone who was sensible enough to take a peerage that used his actual surname. Yes, yeah, we that's don't have to nice. com- get confused now. Mm. But his father had actually been a baronet, an MP, Lord Commissioner of the Treasurer, and then was made a baron. So he was a kind of middleweight politician, but quite wealthy. Yeah, seems to have done all the sort of standard jobs to get a nice peerage. Much like Lord Wilmington, Henry Pelham and his brother were the product of their father's second marriage. However, they had a rather higher rate of sibling survival, with at least six sisters making it to the age where they could be married off. The slightly depressing thing being that literally all we know about most of the sisters is if they were married or not. Yeah, especially when you go through women at this time, it's just, they were born here, this was their father, this was their husband, these were their sons, and then they died. Which is rather dispiriting. Some of them also seem to have died possibly in childbirth. So, yeah, yeah, that's that's a depressing litany. His mother actually died, unfortunately, when he was about four years old. Mm. In childbirth? Um, I don't think so, but, you know, I'm actually not sure, because he did have quite a few sisters. Mm. His brother Thomas was about two years older, and I say about because it could have been four years. (laughs) He was educated at Westminster School, King's College, Cambridge, and Hart Hall, Oxford, which is nowadays called Hartford College. He went to both... Oxford, Oxford and Cambridge. Ah. We should deduct him a point. <laughs> For not picking a side in the boat race. In 1711, their mother's brother, John Hollis, Duke of Newcastle, died. John left his entire estate to the elder brother, Thomas Pelham, on the condition that Thomas changed his surname to Pelham Hollis, which he duly did. Ah, okay. Does that mean he, get, he gets the title as well, or just the money? It doesn't mean that he gets the title automatically, okay. but... It did mysteriously turn up a couple of years later. Their father died a year later. And once again, the older brother, Thomas Pelham Hollis, was the primary beneficiary. Although presumably he wasn't required to change his name back again, because that would be (laughs) really awkward. This made the older brother one of the richest and most powerful landowners in the country. Nice. And he was 19. Oh my god. (laughs) And in those days, you weren't even an adult until you were 21. Oh, yeah, it's good true. to be the older brother. If, if you'd made me one of the richest and most powerful people in the country at the age of 19, I would have got up to all sorts of trouble. Well, yeah, you would have bought a lot of sealing wax <laughs> to send letters. That's all I would have done. I've blown it all. <laughs> gone on some wine tasting courses. Oh, I would. Well, 
Unfortunately, we're talking about the younger brother, and in the words of John W. Wilkes, whose book I read during my research, Henry Pelham was left with little but his wits to advance his career. I think there was a little bit of irony, or at least there should have been a little bit of irony in the statements, because in the previous sentence he described how Pelham had inherited £5,000 from his father. Which is about £850,000 in today's money. <laughs> that's, that's wits I and a little bit more. I would also like to inherit £5,000 or £850,000. I'll take either, actually, <laughs> to be honest, in this economy. As well as various small annuities for life. So he was oh. actually set for life. Oh, he's he fine! Just, oh. just, you know, it wasn't as much money as his brother had. I mean, how <laughs> difficult was that? I bet he complained about it all the way, though, didn't he? Yeah, wouldn't you, though? Yeah, actually, I probably would. Well, with only a £5,000 inheritance to his name, Pelham set off around the world to find himself. He joined a volunteer regiment of the army and led troops in the Battle of Preston in 1715. Oh, an actual commander. An actual battle. There was a Jacobite Ooh. uprising and he raised volunteer troops and he led them into battle. That's fun. Into the last battle on English soil. Oh! <gasps> Oh, that is interesting. Oh, he has to get points for that. Arguably, depending on what you consider to be a battle. And I've got some points about the other alternative battles. He was about 19 at the time. 4,000 people fought in the battle, of which 350 were killed or wounded, approximately. He also spent some time on the continent, which I'm presuming was Europe. But given (laughs) that literally everything I read just said the continent, it could could have been Antarctica. It could have been America, yeah. (laughs) Antarctica. I choose to believe that it was Antarctica. He (laughs) went to find himself. He went to somewhere where his brother didn't own everything. <laughs> in 1717, aged about 21, he returned to Britain to discover that his brother had been made Duke of Newcastle. Oh, wow. And appointed Lord Chamberlain. Oh. Goodness. I bet he was even more furious. Yeah, well, you'd be annoyed, wouldn't you? You say that, but actually, he decided that it was time for him to step into politics. Ah. Well, he's, he has found himself in Antarctica. <laughs> so. yes. A so how do you think Henry Pelham made it into politics? Okay, did he get Robert Walpole to do everything for him, like the last guy? Or did he get oh, did his, he get his brother <gasps> to, to buy gi- him? To give him a rotten borough, Yeah, perhaps? he bought a rotten borough. He asked his brother. A by-election was taking place in <laughs> oh. Seaford, a pocket borough that was owned by the Duke of Newcastle, no. his brother. So Henry Pelham was a shoo-in. <laughs> did he lose? Well, in 1671, the House of Commons had ruled that the right to vote in Seaford extended to the populacy, which meant any resident householder that paid scot and lot, which is essentially a precursor to council tax. Oh, okay. Okay. Kess, do you want to give our American listeners a brief idea as to what council tax is? Oh, I have no idea what council... Uh, No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Council tax is a thing that you have to pay every month, and it is based on where you live. It basically goes to pay for things that the local council need money for, so like roads and bins. Um... In theory, this means that the rules were quite relaxed compared to other boroughs. But in practice, Newcastle had the power to decide who did or didn't have to pay the tax. Oh. Oh, so he can reduce the amount of tax that gets paid and thereby reduce the number of voters. Yeah, and as one of the richest people in the country. He he doesn't doesn't care, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Would you give up the right to vote if it meant that you didn't have to pay council tax? Yeah, I absolutely would. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to say on principle, no, but it's it's a lot of money. I completely agree. I mean, it's it's about one or two thousand pounds a year. That's that's money I could have back for not voting. Henry Pelham did win the seat, and he quickly caught the notice of leading Whigs. And with the support of Lord Townsend, Walpole's brother-in-law, he obtained the office of Treasurer of the Chamber, which is a minor role in the royal household but a first step on the greasy pole, and at only 24 years of age. Oof. Cass, do you want to remind us who Walpole and Townsend are? 
Oh, Robert Walpole was our first prime minister, and Townsend was Walpole's brother-in-law, and they both had like high offices, but then Townsend basically wasn't doing anything. John's nodding at me like, yeah, you got it right, well done. (laughs) (laughs) One fact that we didn't mention before was that Charles Townsend, second Viscount Townsend, was actually married twice. His first wife, the Honourable Elizabeth Pelham, (gasps) was a half-sister of Henry and Thomas. Wait, so he is both Robert Walpole's brother-in-law and Henry Pelham's brother-in-law? Yes. He's brother-in-law to two prime ministers. Yep. This has got to be a record. not become a prime minister. (laughs) Well, is he the only person to be brother-in-law to two prime ministers? I can tell you that he was brother-in-law to more than two prime ministers. Oh, it just keeps How going. many wives did he have? <laughs> His first wife unfortunately died at about the age of 30, which is around the same time as the boy's uncle, right when they were sort of on the cusp of adulthood. And Townsend would then go on to marry Walpole's sister, which obviously created that sort of super yeah. powerful alliance. But he still obviously had some connection with the Pelham family, and that connection paid off at this point. Through Townsend, Henry Pelham began a friendship with Walpole that would serve them both very well for years to come. Yeah, clearly. Especially because you have to remember that Newcastle would have been in the House of Lords along with Townsend, whereas Pelham and Walpole would have been in the House of Commons. This is why Lord Wilmington was so rubbish, because like all of these other blokes are related. He's, he's not in the club, he's not in the family. I mean, It's like the Mafia. You are not wrong. Yeah. It is really, isn't it? It's so tightly connected, all of them. It was right around this time that the South Sea bubble burst, and with the political upheaval this caused, Walpole and Townsend stepped into power. Pelham was not one of the people pushing for the crisis, but he and his brother did lose about £2,000 or £350,000 of today's money, so presumably they had invested in slavery, just a reminder to anybody. However, in the aftermath of the crisis... Pelham swung in to support Walpole, and this meant vigorously defending the Earl of Sunderland, one of the previous Whig leaders, who was definitely guilty. Oh, yeah. And screening him and the other sort of senior people, including the king, helped the Whigs stay in power. With Pelham's help, in fact, Sunderland was saved from impeachment. He promptly stepped into opposition, caused a frightful racket, and then died of pleurisy a year later. The good news was, Walpole was in and Pelham followed on their coattails, being appointed a member of the Treasury Board. So he's rising up. He is, and his brother Newcastle also quickly aligned himself with Walpole and remained Lord Chamberlain. In the subsequent 1722 election, Newcastle supported his brother in campaigning for the Sussex County seat. More prestigious seat. This was a much more prestigious seat. So you remember there are borough seats, which Mm. are the ones that are basically owned by somebody, because there is only a handful of electors. And then there are county seats where all of the people in Sussex are allowed to vote. All of the people, meaning all of the men with quite a lot of property and therefore not that many people. But there's to be thousands of them. So it was actually quite hard to, you know, you, you actually did have to contest these elections. Yeah. We didn't have the, the secret ballot yet. So contesting the election often involved spending a lot of money to bribe people or, or just buying all of the pubs every round for the next <laughs> week, that sort of thing. But it would have been an expensive operation. Um, but with the support of the Duke of Newcastle, one of the most powerful landowners in the country, Pelham was duly elected. The next year, Pelham figured out how to make it out of the moderately wealthy crowd. I mean, he just lost a bunch of money on slave trading. He must have been practically (laughs) poor at that point. And he made it back into the fantabulously rich bracket where he belonged. Did he invest in something else good? Oh, no, did he skim loads of money off, given his job? He's on the Treasury board, but you're not warm at the moment. Did he... Did did someone else die who gave him money? Oh, yeah, yeah. Did he have to change his name? You're closer. (laughs) What else can you do that involves somebody changing their name? Did he get married? He did get married. Oh, he's married someone really rich. 
as a young man of good stock. All he had to do was find himself a wife, and she would come gift-wrapped with a dowry. He achieved this in 1726, marrying Lady Catherine Manners, the daughter of the Duke and Duchess of Rutland. Ah, she no. sounds rich. She sounds like she's probably got the She cash. brought with her a dowry of £30,000, which is about £5 million in today's money. Oh, I yep. would marry her also. <laughs> which he promptly swapped with his brother for the family estates in Lincolnshire. What? Ooh. What did Lady Catherine think about this? Well, actually, despite the mercantile beginnings of their relationship, Henry and Catherine were very happy together, oh. and apparently he was a devoted husband and father to their four children. Oh, OK. Oh, that's, that's nice. nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... Personally, if I married someone and they were we <laughs> five million pounds, I'd hope that we'd be happy together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they would live off the income from those estates for the rest of their lives. Although, in fact, Newcastle would often supplement Pelham's income, apparently. <laughs> Sorry, supplement his income of five million pounds. Uh, his income of Lincolnshire. <laughs> his income of yeah, whatever Lincolnshire's earning that he bought for five million. Perpetual probation. Does he get arrested? No, he's just... He's an apprentice to Walpole. Uh, That kind of probation. By now, we're firmly into Walpole's premiership, and both brothers were on the up. In fact, Newcastle was the one very much in the inner circle of power. During one of George I's trips to Hanover, he took Townsend and Carteret, the northern and southern secretaries, with him. And Townsend wrote back frequently, and in more than one of his letters, he demanded that his information be shared with Newcastle alone. Ooh, so he was almost like regent or something whilst everyone was away. Well, Walpole was regent while everyone was away, but Newcastle was involved too. Yeah. Walpole similarly displayed his faith in Newcastle because he did leave Newcastle in charge of the government when he visited Norfolk. Although it has to be said that Norfolk is not very far away from London. No. (laughs) Unlike Hanover. Yeah. (laughs) But it's a nice vote of confidence. Yes. The brothers were very close, so Pelham benefited from his brother's success and the knowledge and access that it gave him. In 1724, there was a scuffle in the government. Walpole and Townsend had never liked Carteret, who was a member of the opposition Whig faction, and they threatened to resign over a minor disagreement about French policy. George was forced to ask them to stay, and Carteret was banished. Do you remember how Carteret was banished, Kess? I have no idea. I remember him from the Lord Wilmington one, because it was his Yeah, it was his government, right? He was made Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. Oh, yeah, he got promoted. Walpole loved doing that. Get him out of the way. Newcastle took Carteret's job as Southern Secretary, and Pelham was put in an almost a senior position, the Secretary at War. Ooh, at war. (laughs) So, turns out that the Secretary at War and the Secretary of War are basically the same title, except that one of them is older than the other, and there was an overlap of about 50 years that hasn't happened yet. So you had two Secretaries at at and of War. Yeah. That's funny. That's really fun. Are they at war with each other? (laughs) Potentially. (laughs) Um, But at this point, it's just the Secretary at War. These appointments are basically jobs three and four in the government after Walpole and Townsend are one and two. So the brothers had made it. This family! Yeah. Walpole and Townsend were firmly in charge, but the Pelhams were their deputies. Literally, they're all related. One, two, three, and four. Over the next two decades of Walpole's premiership, Pelham would prove an able administrator and a close ally of Walpole. Two decades. I forgot he was in for that long. (laughs) We should have made it at least two episodes. We could have had an entire series on Walpole. God, yeah. Can we not? (laughs) Pelham learned valuable lessons about campaigning and electioneering, both for himself and for his peers. Or indeed... (laughs) His commoners. (laughs) At one point, he was protected from an angry mob by a prominent Tory leader, Lord Gower, who also happened to be his wife's first cousin. (laughs) Another one. Also, what what did he do to make there be an angry mob? I mean, it was an election. Presumably there are angry mobs in elections, right? 
in the 18th yes. century. It sounds like the kind of thing, especially if the there's no secret ballot and there's just lots of people chucking money at you. I can imagine <laughs> it being quite febrile. That's an excellent word. Aww. Thank you. Pelham defended the government from an attack by William Pulteney, the leader of the opposition Patriot Whigs, over the civil list, and Pulteney was forced to resign his position as cofferer of the royal household. Cofferer? Yeah, basically somebody who, who pays the royal household. Oh, not like coiffeur. <laughs> Hairdresser. Hairdresser. <laughs> Under the curtilage of Walpole, he held on to his position following George II's accession to the throne when Townsend faded into obscurity and eventually resigned. He carried out his role as secretary at Orwell, although it was peacetime, and he was made paymaster of the forces, taking over the job from Lord Wilmington. Ah, uh, yes. This is technically a less senior role, but in practice, it was a gold mine. Oh, is this where, yeah, you can just choose your own. Yeah. Um, if so it, it if be... the job begins with paymaster, it, yes. it means stealmaster. <laughs> so it would only be given to the most loyal of supporters. And I have learned that apparently the reason that the paymaster's role was so potentially lucrative was basically because you were in charge of a large pot of money to pay people with, but quite a lot of the time the money would just be sitting there because it wasn't paid out yet. So you could invest that money and then make a return on the investment uh, and nobody would notice. I see. That sounds dodgy. It does. But there is no indication that Pelham did this. And in fact, I've got some some stuff about that later on. He did the job, but there's no indication that he abused the position. Interesting. Which, given that everyone abused the position, that sort of seems... Yeah, that's rubbish. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and given that he has a bit of a bee in his bonnet about the fact that he didn't earn a huge inheritance. Yeah. Mm. How Looks weird. like he actually has a conscience. I'm going to give him minus Ooh. points for that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we've so just given him one good characteristic. He <laughs> has like no. During the excise crisis, he actually voted against Walpole, which is the only time he ever did so, because he believed that an increased tax on salt wouldn't have been required if they had just restructured the government debt. Despite voting against him, though, he actually publicly supported Walpole through the crisis, and he was even left in charge of the government at one point during the crisis, which is a huge vote of confidence in somebody who's just voted against you. Very weird, but essentially I think his point is that he was actually a very able administrator, and he said, look, we don't have to do it like this. He and his brother would routinely visit Walpole in Norfolk at this stage, and together they would discuss government policy. That sounds thrilling. Actually, sounds like our (laughs) (laughs) Yes, what do you think we're doing? (laughs) However, cracks began to appear in the administration in 1737, and the emboldened Newcastle demanded that the previously exiled Carteret be appointed to the cabinet. Walpole refused, but his position was weakened, especially as one of his biggest supporters, Queen Caroline, sadly died later that year. However, Pelham refused to allow the two men to fall out, and he worked hard to maintain their support for one another, even when it became clear that Walpole was on his last legs. Do you remember which war broke out at this point? The War of Jenkins' oh, Ear! Yes! How the guy is... with his ear pickled yeah. in a jar. For more details, see our episode on Robert Walpole. Yeah. <laughs> and Pelham continued to be Walpole's right-hand man and primary supporter in the Commons, but he was also involved in supporting his brother, who was really the one who was prosecuting the war. Admittedly not very well at this stage. Right. As a side note, this is around when the Foundling Hospital was established. Oh, yeah. It was a children's home for orphans, and Pelham was to be one of the founding governors. Wilmington was also involved, and possibly Walpole too. I've actually really struggled to find a comprehensive list of the movers and shakers behind this, because it turns out that literally everyone in society was involved somehow. Oh, I see. (laughs) The hospital's early backers were 21 ladies of quality and distinction, (laughs) who signed a petition supporting Thomas Coram, who was the man who basically said, it's awful that there are children just dying on the streets because they don't have parents. So when Thomas Coram managed to get these ladies of quality and distinction to back him, they essentially forced all of the men in power to get behind this project. And as a result of their determination for the hospital to succeed, 
it became the popular charity of the day and everyone in society gave loads of money and time and energy to try and make it happen. Oh, interesting. Well done to the ladies of quality and distinction. Yes, all 21 of them. Yeah. <laughs> Walpole is axed. In January of 1742, Walpole was finally forced to resign after losing a confidence vote in the Commons. At the time, the Whigs had about 75% of the seats in the Commons, split between the Loyalist and Patriot Whigs, so the six leading Whigs got together to work out what to do next. As mentioned in our What is a Prime Minister episode, this is one way to lose power. The thing is, it doesn't necessarily trigger a general election. It does not. Nowadays it probably would though, wouldn't it? Losing a no-confidence vote? Um, normally, yes. I mean, you could just resign, or you could say, well, I'll dissolve Parliament and see if I can get a new Parliament. Isn't mm. that what happened with the Tory party, like, recently? Mm, not recently. There were... There's the odd, like, no-confidence vote Boris that turns not? up. He faced one, but he won it, because he had a huge majority. No, oh, I forgot he'd won it. What about trust? I should not have time. <laughs> the last successful no-confidence vote was against James Callaghan yeah, in 1979. That brought Margaret Thatcher into power. Well, so usually uh, your party will try and oust you before they... T- because it's really publicly embarrassing to lose Oh, okay, so they just vote. kicked her out. There's a sort of tier system where your party aren't going to rebel against you in the Commons if they can get rid of you and put a new person up quickly. Okay. That is quite annoying because often the process within the party is called a vote of no confidence. But when we talk about a vote of no confidence, that normally refers to the House of Commons having a vote. Oh, that's different. It's not the party. Right, because I was like, I'm sure that is what happened within the Tory party. So yeah, that's true. Lots of the recent Tory PMs have faced votes of no confidence within their party. But not in the House. But not a parliamentary vote of no confidence. Okay, that makes sense. So we've now got six leading Whigs getting together in a back room, presumably with cigars, to figure out what's going to happen next. Who's going to get the top job? That's how politics works. On the side of the government, where Henry Pelham his brother, the Duke of Newcastle, and their ally, the Earl of Hardwick. According to some correspondences that we have at the time, Pelham was the one pulling the strings on this side of the table. Hmm. On the opposition side were Carteret, Pulteney, and Samuel Sands. I hope that you recognise Carteret and Pulteney, but only because their names come up a lot. Who wasn't at the negotiating table? Lord Wilmington. Exactly. <laughs> the guy who gets it. Yep. Also, the king wasn't there, and neither was Walpole, because these six posh blokes were the ones who were going to make the decision. Wow. There was a deadlock, and eventually, between the six of them, they agreed on a compromise candidate, Lord Wilmington. Oh, that explains so much, doesn't it? On the basis that they expected him to be a lame duck, I presume. Yes, and they weren't disappointed in that. (laughs) In the ensuing scuffle, the Pelham brothers held on to their positions... Carteret became the Northern Secretary, Sands got to become the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Pulteney was made Earl of Bath, and Walpole was allowed to retire gracefully with an earldom. Pelham was instrumental in defending his friend and mentor from public criticism. He had refused to take either of Walpole's offices, that's First Lord of the Treasury or Chancellor of the Exchequer, on the basis that he wouldn't profit from Walpole's fall. Which is oddly noble, but it also works out quite well for him in a minute. I mean, spoilers, but this is his episode. <laughs> yes. This also meant that he retained a close relationship with the greatest statesman of the era and the person who knew where everybody was buried. That's clever. So he's given the premiership to someone else who he knows is going to be a lame duck so that he can stay in power, bide his time, be the central guy to take over when that falls Ooh. apart. It has to be said that they are all doing it on that basis. Yes, okay. <laughs> but Pelham's the one who retained a relationship with Walpole. Yeah. 
Something I do also want to point out, though, actually, is that Carteret didn't want the top job. And, in fact, he saw it as an administrative position with a heavy burden, and he just didn't want it. He wanted to be a master diplomat who was pulling the strings of Europe and not somebody who was stuck in an office looking at local problems. So that's why, at this point, and actually several other points in his career, he explicitly turned down the top job. Mm-hmm. Which is actually a bit of a problem for the faction of people behind him yes. who to take it. <laughs> Also, this discussion was a masterstroke from the Pelhams, because by inviting the leaders of the opposition Whigs in, they actually managed to split them away from their own party, because the other opposition Whigs saw it as a huge betrayal that these, you know, th- these people saw themselves as grand enough to go into this back room and, and negotiate the future. Yeah. Oh, divide and conquer. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, Wilmington took power. Not much happened so for about... <laughs> Not much happened for about 16 months. Then Wilmington died. (laughs) Suddenly there was a vacuum at the top. Walpole wrote to Pelham, saying, Gain time, strengthen yourself, and enter into no hasty agreement. Lost opportunities are not easily retrieved. Oh, He's setting him up to be the PM. Mm. Walpole's such a schemer, isn't he? He is. There were two months of tension, while Carteret and Pelham carefully played their cards. Wait, he didn't have a Prime Minister for two months? Mm. We didn't have nukes in those days. Yeah, <laughs> we didn't have nukes. It didn't help that the one person who could actually make the decision, George II, was at the time in Hanover. Oh, what is it with these Hanoverians going to Hanover? <laughs> I know. <laughs> and Carteret was with him. Oh, no. You've just got a better kingdom. Just stay in the better kingdom. However... No offence to Hanoverians. <laughs> I was going to say. Just alienated half our audience there. <laughs> You've just got a bigger kingdom. <laughs> Pelham and his brother simply controlled too much of the commons between them to lose. Although Walpole was supporting Pelham from behind the scenes, the last 16 months had actually allowed them to take control of Walpole's supporters whilst also not being directly associated with Walpole himself. Oh, sneaky. Mm. One key ally at this stage was Lord Gower, Pelham's wife's first cousin. Who saved him from a mob. Exactly. And was a Tory. Because ah. despite that, he was actually Lord of the Privy Seal. Because in those days, it wasn't hugely uncommon to have members of, the, of another party in the government with you, especially in a time of war. Interesting. As a prominent Tory, his support of the Pelhams made it very difficult for anybody else to put together a government. Yeah, of course. Because both parties are behind the same guy. Mm. Two months. They, they left it for two months without having a prime minister. Do you know what they needed? <laughs> How did they finish that two months? <laughs> Well, they needed a guy. <laughs> like a best guy. <laughs> like a prime guy. <laughs> a guy who's related to everyone else yeah. in Parliament. <laughs> they needed Henry Pelham. Congratulations, Henry. At the end of August, Pelham was offered the position of First Lord of the Treasury, and at the advice of Walpole, he took it. Hooray. Yay. He's Prime Minister. An uncertain beginning. Henry Pelham did not step into a well-established and respected office of leadership. Walpole had done a lot in his 20-odd years in power to establish the preeminence of the First Lord of the Treasury, but Wilmington had rather taken it in the opposite direction. With the War of the Austrian Succession really starting to build up, Lord Carteret was really at the forefront of politics. In brief, the War of the Austrian Succession was a war about whether or not a woman could inherit the Habsburg Empire. Oh, it wasn't even that it was, could a woman inherit it? It was like, which woman, right, though? Was it? I don't yeah, because it was Maria Theresa. Her father wanted her to inherit it, but there were two other women who were like his nieces who would have been first in line, but he changed the succession so that she could come ahead of them. 
And like lots of people were like, nah. And also, it was that thing where, you know how, um, like, oh, the taxes always go to the king, but like as soon as he demands them, then everyone's like, whoa, no, 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 don't do that. Do you remember like John? Yeah, yeah. It was the same thing, because like, it wasn't technically a hereditary title, but like the same family had had it for like 25 generations or whatever. But because he was like assuming, he was like, well, I've been this guy, my dad was, my grandfather was, my 25 generations back, because he was, like, assuming that his kid, therefore, must be the next in line. All of the people were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Excuse me. This is pretty rich. This is a pretty rich assumption for you to make after your entire family have <laughs> yes. all had this role for, like, 100 years. Because Salic law, which is the Frankish civil law code, from like hundreds and hundreds of years ago before this, excluded women from inheriting the Habsburg monarchy. Uh, and Is it like completely? So it's yeah, it's completely. Okay. So to mean that it could go to a woman, he had to get a- approval from all of the Habsburg territories and the imperial diet. <laughs> <Very nice. laughs> I know quite a few emperors who should probably go on an imperial <laughs> diet. My favourite thing about Salic law was that it was created to stop the British from inheriting the French throne. Was it? Was yeah. it? That's so funny. Because uh, there was a point at which all of the heirs died and the closest relative was definitely the English king. I think it might have been Edward III, but he would inherit it via his mother. So they quickly oh. wrote a rule and said, <laughs> no, no, women don't count. Sorry, we hate you. <laughs> In practice, the Austrian reasons for the war were really just a pretext for the sort of European war that was pretty common at this stage. There was a lot of posturing, Three quarters of a million people were killed or wounded, a handful of territories changed hands, and various friendships ended or began, or rivalries were renewed, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's sort of like, we haven't done one of these for 20 years, it's a lot of fun, let's find an excuse to do another one. Yeah. Yeah. Colonies were changing hands without people even knowing where they were, that sort of thing. (laughs) Yeah. Britain's main involvement was that we were close allies of Austria, and were trying to defend Little Hanover. Of course. We were also keen on hanging on to Gibraltar, which we'd nicked off the Spanish about 30 years earlier. The war never actually reached Great Britain. We were mostly sending out troops and gold to back up our allies. At the end of the day, we realised that Prussia, who had been on the other side of the conflict, would be rather better supporters of Hanover than Austria had been. And that's pretty much the entire British perspective on the War of the Austrian Succession. Right. It's quite simple, really. Yes. That's not to undermine the fact that lots of people died. At this stage, individual government departments wouldn't really interfere with one another. Walpole had been able to do it because he controlled all of the money, which obviously every department needed. Pelham did have an involvement because he was paymaster of the forces, and he apparently exercised his duties well and with much influence, but it was still not as much as he would have liked. Carter essentially carried out all of the diplomacy with no consultation. And this annoyed a lot of people, including Carteret's own allies. And with Carteret distracted and unsupported, Pelham continued to draw allies to his side and strengthened his position, and he was able to make himself Chancellor of the Exchequer at the end of 1743. Ah, so now he controls the cash. Mm. The next year was filled with bitter disputes. The King supported Carteret, who was pro-Hanover, but the Pelhams wanted Carteret out. There was also a personal disagreement between the brothers about their inheritance. Oh, again? Yeah. In the end, though, they worked together and they won together, and Carteret was forced out in November of 1744, and the Pelhams were in power. This power was tested almost immediately. Do you remember the Jacobites? Yes, the people who didn't like the Glorious Revolution when James II was kicked off the throne for being Catholic. Yep. Well, one of James VI and I's principal supporters was his son, Charles Edward Stuart, or 
Bonnie Prince Charlie. <gasps> Bonnie Prince Charlie! I yes. love Bonnie Prince Charlie. It's such a good story. I'm afraid the uh, uh, Pelhams did not like Bonnie Prince Charlie no. because he was, in fact, committing treason. Oh, yes. no. Apparently he was a massive loser. So, like, well, I mean, he definitely lost this, but... <laughs> when I was a kid, I remember reading loads of, like, adventure stories where I was like, oh, Bonnie Prince Charlie, you know, he's flouncing around Scotland in his kilt. Oh, he's really rugged. Yeah, he's the prince. Uh, and all of this. And then, like... I remember growing up and like actually reading about him and apparently he just buggered off to France and like got old and was really lame and no oh. one liked him. Oh. <laughs> so disappointing. Pretty much summarise what's about to happen. Oh, but, no. <laughs> but we'll go through it from a British perspective if that's okay. In August of 1745, with most of the British army abroad in Europe fighting the war of the Austrian succession, Charlie launched a rebellion in the Scottish Highlands. At the same time, French and Spanish forces were to attack from the continent. Which continent? Antarctica. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been... uh... (laughs) There must be somewhere closer. (laughs) Sicily. (laughs) Initially starting with only a couple of hundred Highlanders, Charlie marched into Edinburgh unopposed. He scattered the British forces, declared James VII the King of Scotland, with Charlie as his regent. It it was wild, right? Because Scotland was so here for this. So, interestingly, Scotland as a whole wasn't. And in fact, so this is one of the things that people did a lot of Sort of soul-searching after oh, this rebellion failed. My children's books have lied to me. Well, no, so there were lots of Scots who were here for this. But on the whole, actually, James had always been liked a bit more in England than he had in other places. Oh. And one of the things that stopped a lot of his attempts to come back into power was that he was always trying to do it via Scotland or via Ireland. But they always said, and then you'll make us important, right? And he always went, oh, maybe. <laughs> and as a result, they would never support him enough. Yeah, he, like, never went to Scotland, did he, despite being Scottish? The British immediately recalled 12,000 troops from the continent and prepared their fleets for a naval invasion. Of Scotland? No, as in for the incoming French and Spanish Oh, fleets. right. I was going to say, surely there's an easy way to get to Scotland. <laughs> Charlie marched south and made it as far as Derby, which is about halfway down England. That is a long way. Yeah. Mm. However, at this point, it became clear that the English weren't about to flock to his banner, and the British army, which was led by the Duke of Cumberland, was on its way north. Oh, yeah. Uh-oh. Charlie turned and fled and there was a small skirmish as they hightailed it back to the north. And that skirmish is one of the other contenders for last battle on English soil. Oh, interesting. Cumberland followed, and he crushed Charlie's army in a battle near Inverness. Charlie survived and fled, but he had burned too many bridges to be a serious threat again. His brother, Henry, became a Catholic priest, and the Jacobite cause came to an end. He went and hung out in France like a big old loser. Mm. But there were a couple of Jacobites left behind. The Jacobite lords Kilmarnock, Balmerino, and Lovett were beheaded in April of 1747, which is, I think, the last beheading in Britain. Really? Interesting. Another interesting thing of note was that the French and Spanish never really gave Charlie the backup he needed. And this is partly because they were already involved in a war against Britain and others, so it's not (laughs) like they just had armies to spare. They were already doing it. So Bonnie Prince Charlie decided to invade because England and Britain were busy fighting a war. Forgetting that France and Spain <laughs> were fighting that war. So Pretty much, everyone yeah. was busy. Yeah, he did okay. get some money from France, but they never did that much. And it can also be argued that Jacobitism itself was helpful for the foreign powers who were trying to disrupt Britain. Yeah. But if the rebellion had actually succeeded, then they would have just been against Britain again. Yeah, it wouldn't have meant okay. very much. With the Jacobites defeated, the Pelhams felt that it was time to solve an issue that had been gnawing away at them for some time. Their inheritance. Lord Carteret was gone. But his influence remained because he held the king's ear. And so the king kept making foreign policy suggestions that came from Carteret Ah. in the middle of a war. Pelham and his brother rang up their old cronies, gathered their allies, 
and in early 1746, they resigned from the government. Oh, A big like, I'm going to leave you in the lurch. And that's where we're going to leave it for today's episode. <gasps> no! But what happened? Oh, that's drama. Find out next week on oh. Henry Pelham Part 2. Oh, that's John, what an exciting place to finish. Yeah. No. Dispatch Box. Well, welcome to Dispatch Box, our new little feature at the end of episodes, where we recount all your wonderful messages that you're sending in, both to our Twitter at primetime underscore cast and right on right off at gmail.com. I want to say a particular thanks to the Flatpak History of Sweden podcast, who are not only some of our earliest listeners, definitely our first actual listeners in Sweden, but have also been really, really good friends. Yeah. And they were very forgiving about my pronunciation of Gillenborg. Oh, I thought you were going to do it properly then. So I'm going to try. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently it's a little bit like Gillenboy. Ooh. We'll find out if that was right or not. <laughs> but I'm going to go with the idea that the Brits definitely didn't pronounce it correctly. This was the Gillenborg Yillenbui plot uh, in the time of Robert Walpole. It was indeed. So every time we get listeners from a new country, we're going to do a little shout-out to you. Um, so I've already butchered uh, a g'day from Australia, and <laughs> I've annoyed all the Australians. I'm very, very sorry. Um, so hello to everyone from Sweden. Hello. 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 It's H A L and then an A with a circle over it. And now we've all butchered it. <laughs> Hello, Sweden. Our apologies for that. <laughs> and goodbye. <laughs> this was the first episode on Henry Pelham. Thank you for listening. He's currently resigned. So he's, he's I don't know, he's yeah, in purgatory. He's, he's, he's in pre- he's gone, but prime ministerial purgatory. He's gone. Premiership purgatory. <laughs> In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at primetime underscore cast for memes of Henry Pelham uh, and lots of behind the scenes photos of Podcat, etc. Uh, or you can write in at writeonwriteoff at gmail.com. And remember, never flinch, never weary, never despair, and subscribe to our podcast. <laughs> A 19th century steamship. <laughs> In Antarctica. <laughs> In Antarctica. <laughs>